I think it's such an amazing song. It's, it's classic. You know, Irvin Berlin wrote that song, and he wrote it from Southern California, uh, Dreaming of a White Christmas. And interestingly enough, it holds the Guinness Book World Record for the uh, most sold single of all time. You know who recorded it first? was Bing Crosby. Doesn't he have an amazing voice? Yeah. He recorded it right, right around the time of Pearl Harbor. And uh, one, I was doing some study on the song, and it was pretty amazing. And one person coined that song saying this. Number one, it was one of the most requested songs from soldiers at the front, and it became a hymn that carried an entire nation through a wartime period. Since then, White Christmas has become something that we always want. I mean, you know, we only hope it snows one day of the year, and that's this Tuesday, right, the 25th, and it's going to be a white Christmas. And uh, I watched the movie the other day. I have actually memories of watching the movie when I was a kid, 1954, you know. I turned it on the other day just to hear Bing Crosby sing that song uh, in the beginning of the movie, and of course they sing it uh, at the end. And I was thinking about White Christmas and the whole idea of it, because the moment you hear the song or you watch the movie, memories, right, come and it evokes this sense of family and belonging and warmth, and uh, it kind of transports you to a different place. And I was thinking about White Christmas and why we all want and desire a White Christmas, and I think it's safe to say that we all do, right? And I was thinking about what is it, though? Why do we want a White Christmas? Why do we think about that? And it's not just because of the snow, because I think the snow is beautiful, because the snow can make the ugliest of landscapes beautiful, right? You can drive by a place that you hate looking at, it snows, and then you stop and you pause, like, oh, that's so beautiful. You know, it's the snow. It, it, it covers things. It, it adds beauty to things. It changes our perspective, doesn't it? What was once ugly and something you didn't want to look at, now you pause and you see beauty and you see something different and you can see a possibility. You have a new perspective, I think the reason that we all want a white Christmas is because we're hardwired to do so. And not just because we're hardwired to like snow, but because we're hardwired for family, for belonging, more importantly, for meaning and for purpose. That hardwiring comes from our creator. I want you to listen to this quote. A guy named Augustine, really smart guy, father of the faith, said this. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, And our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. When I think of White Christmas, I think beyond the gifts, beyond the the lights and the beauty and everything, I, I think it really has to do with this, with rest. Wanting to find a rest, not just physically, but even deeper than that, a rest for our heart, a rest for our soul. We all want a white Christmas. Not all of us know how to create it or sustain it. So we find an escape, a movie, a song, a landscape, an ideal picture or image of what Christmas should be, right? Of that time. And for a brief moment, we can escape and find a semblance of of maybe rest or meaning and purpose. Or we can find this is how it should be. And it feels right for a moment. feels right. And really what I think that is, is it's rest. It's finding a place of rest. Now, Christmas has become one of the most not restful times of the year, right? It's busy. It's hectic. We have to buy gifts. There's pressure. There are, are things that happen that instead of going ho, 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 we step back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. We lose people. We lose jobs. We have to get around our family. You know, some people say that friends are the family you choose, and some of us would rather have a Merry Friendsmas than a Merry Christmas with our families, but White Christmas, finding that rest, that's what I think it's all about. 
And I think the Christmas story really helps us to see not only what a white Christmas is, but it helps us to discover how we can have it, how we can have a white Christmas. Now, here's the challenge of a speaker or a preacher. You've got to preach on Christmas every year, and the story never changes, right? So how do you look at the story differently? One of the things I love to do is when I read Scripture, I love to ask questions of the text. Why is that here? What does that mean? I really try, if I'm reading a familiar passage of Scripture, to not say, yeah, I know, I understand, I believe, to look at it critically and say, ooh, what's that? i found that if you ask questions of the text, it'll talk back to you. You'll see things you didn't see before. In this story, I think, are the three fundamental questions of life that are answered to, uh, for us, but also posed to us. Here are the three questions. Who, why, and where? Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And where do we find him? Those are three fundamental questions that every single person has to come to terms with and has to answer. And we find the answers to that in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. I want to read it to you and attempt to look at those, those three questions today. But we're going to read Luke 2, 1 through 14. When I was a kid growing up, I went to a private Christian school, and we had to quote this every single year, but from the, New King James, from the King James Version. I'm going to read it from the New King James, but I want you to listen or follow along, and I want you to maybe think a little more critically. Take a look at the story and say, hmm, why is that here? What does that mean? And see what, what speaks to you. But here's the Christmas story. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child." So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill, towards men. Now, as I told you, if you look at the text and you, you start to ask questions, one of the first questions I, I really ask is, what's going on here? Tim mentioned it during worship, but what we're finding is there is this breaking of silence in history. From the end of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, to the beginning of the, this story, God has not spoken for 400 years. There's been 400 years of silence of God speaking waiting for God to break the silence and speak to his people again. There's anticipation. They, they have a, an idea of what God may say because God has made promises to them all throughout Scripture, promising them a Savior, promising them a Deliverer. And God breaks the silence. But what he breaks the silence with and to whom he does it is amazing to me. One of the questions I ask is, why shepherds? 
Why shepherds? Why break 400 years of silence and talk to shepherds? Why not the king? Why not a priest? God had never spoken specifically through a shepherd. He always spoke through a prophet or a king or a leader, and he chooses shepherds. Shepherds. Now here, it's it's important to understand this. Shepherds once held a place of of being revered in the uh, Hebrew society, but after they went through captivity in Egypt, the Egyptians, they did not revere shepherds at all. They looked down upon them. They were farmers, and to them, shepherds, their animals, represented destruction of their flocks, so they subjugated and marginalized shepherds. This had an impact over 400 years of bondage and the Israel people, the Israeli people or the Hebrew people said, no, we don't, we don't longer look at shepherds as being revered in society. So at this point, after thousands of years to this point, shepherds in their culture were marginalized. Marginalized. They were considered not credible witnesses. They were considered untrustworthy. They were talked about in the same group as tax collectors and dung sweepers. They were really called, if you look and do research, they were called sinners. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. Nobody wanted to associate with shepherds. They were not even considered a credible witness, untrustworthy. I don't know about you, but if I'm God, I'm not picking shepherds to deliver the most important, arguably the most important and impactful message the world has ever seen or heard or will ever see or hear. It's not my first choice or how information will be disseminated to those who are weak, forgotten, marginalized, not credible, pushed off to the side. That's who God chooses to speak to. And he does so in the middle of the night, and he does so by giving them information about a baby. A baby. I think sometimes we have heard the story so much that we step back from it and we treat it as if it's a kind of a myth or a, a tale. And we, we forget, not intentionally, but we forget the reality of the situation, the context of what's going on in this story. Why shepherds? We'll come back to that. But what's amazing is, is, is what the angels tell the shepherds. They make this huge proclamation says, do not be afraid, right? Because this angel appears out of nowhere, right? Like we're talking about it and you're hearing the message from a 33-year-old guy wearing a light green sweater in a church. They're hearing the information out of the middle of the night in a field and an angel, a messenger from heaven appears to them. They're incredibly afraid. So the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid for I bring you tidings of great joy. What is the angel doing? The angel is preaching the gospel to the shepherds. Good news. It's the gospel. And the first thing the angels tell the shepherds is, who is Jesus? That's what they tell him, who he is. Listen to this. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angels give the shepherds three pieces of information, three uh, identities of Christ. Here's the three things. First one is Savior. Second one is Christ or Messiah. And the third is Lord. Now, what is a savior? It's important to understand what they thought of this word in their culture. The word savior in their time was only given to deities, princes, or kings. It's this Greek word soter. And actually in the Greek language, it was a a moniker for the gods. And the angels speak to the shepherds and say this, he is savior. 
a name only given to princes, kings, and deities. He's your Savior. Now, they, they had an understanding, although they weren't highly educated. They were Hebrew. They, they had an understanding of the promises of God that he said that one day a Savior would come. They were looking for a king, right? They weren't looking for a baby. But a Savior would come and set you free. And then he says he is Christ. Some translations say Messiah. That literally means the anointed and chosen one. Giving them context, okay, who I said is here, who is Savior, he's also the one who has been anointed by me and chosen by me to be the Savior. What he's literally saying is he is the Son of God. The angel saying the Son of God, God incarnate, has come to this earth. And they're listening to this, trying to figure out, makes sense. Here's this angel telling us. So they're probably just, I'm just going to believe it because he's saying it. I don't want to argue with him, right? Why'd you choose me? What's going on? He's Savior. He's Christ. And then the third thing, he says, Lord, capital L, capital L. Listen to this. That's what, when we look at Lord, it can literally be this. He to whom a person or thing belongs, about which that person has absolute power of deciding. What does that mean? What he's saying is not only is he going to be your Savior, not only is he the anointed and chosen one, and he is the Son of God, he is ruler over all. He's sovereign over all. What he's saying is God incarnate has come to this earth. All things were created by him. All things were created through him. And all things were created for him. Remember the quote we read? You, O Lord, have created us for you. And we are restless until our heart finds rest in you. He's also telling them, look, I've chosen you of all people to give the message of the gospel to I'm telling you that you can find your meaning and your purpose. You were made for me, and you will find rest in me. I'm Savior, I'm Christ, and I'm Lord. The one who created all, who is distant and in heaven, is now on the earth in the form of a baby with you. That's a lot to take in. There's a problem that you and I may have with this. At least I do. I don't know if you do. But if someone tells me that they're my Savior, they're my Christ, and they're my Lord, my first response is, I don't need one. I don't want one. I will not be subservient to anyone. Do I need a Savior? Do I, do I need a chosen and anointed one? Do I need someone who, who is over me and is sovereign over me? I think human nature says, no, that's not what I need. And it kind of goes all the way back to the beginning of the story when they're in the garden and the serpent says to Eve, did God really say, do you need this? You should do this to be accepted. You should do this to be. The sin, the great sin of humanity is a sin of anonymity. What's that? I do not need God. I am God unto myself. And what the angel is saying to the shepherd, not only do you need me, you could never come to me, and I have come to you to be your Savior, to be your Christ, and to be your Lord. That's the first thing. And I'm so glad that the angel doesn't leave it at that, right? He knows we need more explanation. So he tells us why. Verse 14. And this is perhaps what I find so exciting. Why? God always gives a why. Here's the why. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill 
towards men. It's at this point that it's not just the angel saying it. It is a heavenly host declaring it. It is a choir of heavenly messengers declaring peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And it's said in the text, it said to all men. Here's what's amazing. Since the garden, there has not been peace between God and man. There has been enmity between God and man. There has been separation because of sin. Man has this longing for rest, this longing to be in relationship with God. It was impossible unless for God to come to the earth and do that. And that's what he's saying. Peace on earth Goodwill towards men. God's saying, my posture towards humanity has always been one of peace and goodwill. And now I'm solidifying that and making it a reality. If you look at peace, it's important to define it. Here's what the definition of this word peace is. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. Look at that. The tranquil state of the soul. Not the mind. Not just the emotions. But the tranquil state of the soul, the soul. Here's the beautiful thing. That's what peace is. That's what rest is. It's not a means of something external. It's a means of something internal that comes in us and then goes from us. We will never find peace or rest from anything external, from other people, from success, from achievement, from trips, whatever the case may be. It is a tranquil state of the soul. It means security, safety, happiness, felicity, and it's come to us through Jesus. He said peace and goodwill. Here's what goodwill means. Goodwill means delight, pleasure, satisfaction, and kindly intent. I think that's incredibly beautiful. What he's saying is there's goodwill towards men, that God is delighted and pleased and satisfied, and his intent towards humanity is kind and good. That the God of the universe who created you and I, we screwed it up. We chose to be anonymous and say we don't need you. God fundamentally understanding the need in the story of Christmas says, hey, I have peace. I want to assure your soul and my intent towards you is kind. I am pleased. I am satisfied. Think about that. That's good news. Right? That's the good news of the message of Christmas. Paul, writing later, would reflect back to the Christmas story in Romans 5.1. Here's what he says. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Same word, we have peace. What do we have? Assurance, felicity, kind intent. We have that only through this little baby that came to the earth who was God. So when you think of peace, you step back, you say, what is peace? It's forgiveness and reconciliation. It's, it's family. It's belonging. It's meaning and it's purpose. What is peace? It's a white Christmas. That's what peace is. And it's not a peace that is contingent upon how the room looks, how the lights are, if it snows or not, if you get the perfect gifts, if you can create the right environment. All those things are wonderful and they're fun and we should, I think we should partake of them and enjoy them. But see, the thing about it is God's peace is not momentary. It's not one time a year. We're like, hey, December, I'm going to show up and give you some peace. Hold on to it for the next 11 months. <laughs> it's evergreen. God began something in Christmas and he has continued it. Had continued it. And here's the beautiful thing. 
God has made peace with you and I. God has made peace. This is also the message of Christmas. He's saying, now you two go and do likewise. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. I think one of the biggest reasons why Christmas is not white is because there's a lack of reconciliation and forgiveness in our relationships. Some people don't like Christmas because they got to get around people they don't like. And most of those people they don't like are their family, which you didn't choose. You were blessed with, right? You were blessed with. Family, friends are the family you choose. Family is the family that God gave you. Part of my encouragement to you this Christmas season, one of the greatest gifts you can give and receive is forgiveness, is reconciliation. And that's what some of you need to do. Forgive. That person's no longer here. Forgive. Write a letter. Go to a gravestone. Make a phone call. Be a peacemaker. Well, well, they didn't choose to make peace with me, and what they did was wrong. I get it. Forgiveness is never saying what they did was right. It's setting you free. It's giving you a gift. It's a white Christmas in your soul. God forgave you, and you didn't work for it, and you didn't deserve it, and you didn't earn it. He made peace with you, felicity, pleasure, happiness, safety, security. His intent towards you is good. Paul would say, as you have been forgiven, now go and forgive. Make peace. Maybe it's not another person you need to make peace with. Maybe it's just with God because you experienced a loss. I can't tell you, my eyes were open when I became a pastor to how many people pass away at this time of the year. It's so unfortunate. It's so difficult. People lose their jobs. I mean, things just go crazy. It seems like it's concentrated in this time of the year. But make peace peace and see what God does. See what happens when you take a first step of reconciliation. When you look at a white Christmas, not just being something external or superficial, because here's the thing I said earlier, the snow covers a beautiful, uh, an ugly landscape and makes it beautiful. Here's the problem with snow. When it melts, it leaves it worse than when it found it. Right? Here's the thing. The peace that God gives, it doesn't cover anything. It fundamentally transforms that which is beneath it. That's what it does. So why did he come? For peace. For rest in your soul. That's not just one time a year or external, but is evergreen and is eternal. Which leads us to the third question, and that's that's where. How, how, How good is God? Not only who, why, but let me tell you where you can find him. Let me tell you where he is. How horrible would it have been for the angels to say, Oh, he's here. This is why he came. And the shepherd's like, where do we go? Figure it out. I don't know. Figure it out. (laughs) Figure it out. Listen to this. We're going to jump back to verse 12. And the angel said, this will be a sign to you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. He didn't tell them which baby. He didn't tell them which manger. And they're in Bethlehem, a large city. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. But it's very specific cues for for shepherds, because a manger is a trough. It's a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. It's not a bassinet. It's not something any of you uh, would put your, your kids in. You wouldn't even wrap your kids in swaddling clothes. I mean, those images of like Jesus glowing and these beautiful garments of like silk with frills on them. No, this is like rough cloth, right? He's being put in a, in a feeding trough, in a manger. This is another one of the aspects of the story that I'm like, what? Shepherds? Baby, manger, 
King of kings, Lord of lords, and the best we can do is a, a stable. That's the best we can do. It really kind of starts to defy the mind a little bit. But something happened to me as I was looking at this story, and I'm thinking, okay, the last four years I preached on Christmas. God, give me something new. Give me something new. And then, and then all of a sudden it seemed to, to fit, seemed to work. That, that God effectively came, I believe, for the mangers of our lives. Well, what do you mean? I think the manger represents this, this sense of brokenness and suffering and pain and impoverishment and, and vulnerability and sin. That, that's what God came for. That's what he came to rest in and, and transform and change. And then you think, why shepherds? Why, why shepherds? And then it hit me. It hit me. Because that's who we are. We're all shepherds. We've all been marginalized. We all have, have parts of our lives that are not credible and not trustworthy and we hide them and we push them out to the margins and we've been weak and, and we don't want to present any of that, but that's who he, he came for. And then, and then I realized there's a whole other side of being a shepherd that we didn't talk about and that is a shepherd is one who cares and protects and provides for and there's this level of intimacy. They said they were watching over their flock by night. Where were they? In the field. And it was probably cold with their sheep, with their flocks. And then I thought, wow, here amazing, how amazing is this? The first person that God called and said, from you a great nation will be born. His name was Abraham, and guess what? He was a shepherd. He was a shepherd. And then God called Moses. Like Moses wasn't a shepherd, not, not to begin with. He was in the palace, but then he had to go from the palace to the wilderness, and for 40 years he was a shepherd. He had to be a shepherd before he could set the people free. And then he called David. David was a shepherd. And then it really got started to make sense to me because in David's most uh, famous song that he wrote, Psalm 23, he makes this statement, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leadeth me in his, you know, whatever. He goes through the valley of the shadow of death and his rod and his staff, they comfort me, right? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely, you know, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. But the Lord is my shepherd. Wow. And then I thought, why a baby? Jesus came in the most vulnerable and weak way that he could come, a baby. God entrusts the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord of all of humanity as a baby. Jesus knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be marginalized. He knows what it's like to, to be vulnerable. Yeah, he, he, he never had any sin, but, but he, was, he took that sin upon him. And he knows so much of what it's like to be marginalized and vulnerable and weak and tossed aside that he got up on a cross outside the city and took upon all the guilt and shame of humanity. Fundamentally, he wants to be a shepherd. And he's not looking for the put together successful achievements of your life. That's not why he came. And that is not where you'll find him. Where will you find Jesus? In the manger of your life. In the brokenness, in the pain, in the suffering. And when you are relegated and marginalized so far outside of life, that's where he'll be. I can guarantee you. What we want to do is we want to introduce him to the palace, don't we? 
We say, hey, God, look at my life. Hey, hey, look at this area of my life. It's so good. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, that's good. But where's the manger? Give me the brokenness. Give me the, give me the weakness. Give me the pain. Give me the stuff that you've tried to forget. Give me the stuff that you don't want to show anybody. Give me that stuff and I'll, I'll do something amazing with it. That's why he came. That's why he told shepherds. He said, hey, shepherds, now you go and you go find this, babe. You go find the one that will one day shepherd you. He wants to be your shepherd for when he becomes your shepherd, then he can be your king. But he cares. He protects. He provides. He never leaves. He never forsakes. I, four years ago when my grandfather died, I, I had never dealt, he died, you know, right after Christmas and we knew he was going to pass away. I had never dealt with death that close to me. I was fundamentally afraid, but there was something so amazing about my grandfather's death. And you know what that was? It was the presence of God. He was there. And since then, I've, I've been at the bedside of people who have passed away and I've, it never ceases to amaze me of God's presence in such a moment of pain and loss. He's there. He's there. My question would be this morning is, where are you looking for him? If you're always looking for him in the, in the big lights, in the achievements, in the successes, you're going to miss it. For when you find him in the manger areas of your life and he brings you to a success and he brings you to an achievement and he brings you to freedom, oh, then you can celebrate. Then you can celebrate because you know where you were and now you know where you are. And God wants to move you from there to where he wants you to be. See, here's the thing about Christmas. Sometimes you're like, well, I want to be a wise man. I got a gift to bring him. You got nothing. You got nothing. And they weren't even there. That's like two or three years later, okay? I know I just blew some of your minds, but the wise men were not there at Christmas. They weren't there. There's this beautiful song that says, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. Brokenness and strife is all I have to offer him. But he made something and beautiful with my life. That's what he does. That's what he does. So as you look at the Christmas story this year and in years to come, may you see it from a different perspective. And may every year, may you be reminded, you've got to answer three questions. Who is he? Why is he here? And where is he? Where is he? See, you can, you can follow Jesus for a big portion of your life and love him and still find yourself in a situation say, where is he? Where is he? Where is he in the job loss? Where is he in the death? Where is he in the broken marriage? Where is he? He's there. He's there. And not to condemn you, and not to kick you to the curb, because remember, peace and goodwill, an assurance of your soul, a kindly intent towards you. He's your shepherd. He cares. He provides. He protects and he never leaves. And he never leaves. After verse 14, the angels say, now go find him. Oh, and they find him. And then they go tell a bunch of people, we found the Savior. Who is he? Oh, he's like a baby. But it's amazing. It's said the people were awed at what they heard. I think part of Christmas in our lives should always be this. When we have a true encounter with the person of Jesus Christ, we can't help but tell other people. We can't help but tell, I found one who loves the mangers of my life. And he saved me, and he set me free, and he didn't reject me. I'm no longer marginalized. I'm no longer weak. I'm no longer an outcast. I have family. I have meaning. I have purpose. And I have rest. Rest. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I just want to ask a simple question here this morning. Is this, 
If you're in here today and you say, I need rest. I need the rest of my soul in a relationship with Jesus. I'll admit, I've got manger Areas of my life, sin, brokenness, suffering. I'm ready to, to leave it all right here and Jesus become my Savior, my Christ, and my Lord. A fresh start, a new beginning. Rest here this morning. If that's you, would you just raise your hand because I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to do, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask all of you to repeat after me. But for those of you that raise your hand, you say, is this prayer anything special? Not really. Really, it's the authenticity and genuineness of your heart. And after we pray and you leave here today, I want you to stop by our guest connection. And we have a gift for you. It's called a What's Next box. And no questions asked, nothing. It's got a Bible. It's got a book in it, information. We'd love to put that in your hands. But do this with me. Would you pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness and the freedom, the meaning and the purpose. I come to you this morning. I give you my sin, my brokenness, and I receive that love and acceptance and forgiveness. And I declare, you're my Savior. You're the Messiah. And you're the Lord of my life. Thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for every person that's here this morning. Even those that didn't raise their hand, I pray for those that are just struggling this season to find you, to find meaning, to find rest, to find purpose. God, may they take a step back and realize it's not in the gifts, it's not in the food, it's not in the lights, it's not in the, the, the season, but God, it's in the reason for why we're here, that it's in Jesus, that you can reaffirm to them, Holy Spirit, who you are why you're here and help them to see where you are that you are right there in the midst of whatever they're going through you are our ever present help in time of need father we love you and we thank you and we pray this in jesus name amen